Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. Maybe you've heard of this poem. It's known as Invictus. It was named after a Brit named William Ernest Henley originally wrote it, made famous again by the movie Invictus and Barack Obama quoting the last couple of lines of it at uh, Nelson Mandela's funeral more recently. It goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, referring to the north and south pole, this black pit which is the earth, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my body is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. These words, fate and soul, are words often reserved for someone outside of ourselves, right? Typically, Almighty God, but not in this poem here, very popular poem. Here, the strong words of master and captain refer not to God, but to self. This is the self-made, self-actualized language and mindset of our time. Are you the captain of your soul? the master of your fate. There are two themes in this chapter that was just read for us, two two kind of major themes. The first is, is really apparently clear how the pride of Nebuchadnezzar came crashing down. And the other is a little more subtle, but it's really the reason why Daniel wrote this with, with Nebuchadnezzar, why this was written what its purpose was. And the purpose was for those of Israel who were in exile, it was meant to show that God is sovereign and can take the most powerful man in the world and have him acting like an ox in the forest in an instant. Can take the most powerful man, one of the most powerful men ever, and in an instant drop him low. God can do that. God is able. God is sovereign. And so for those suffering in exile from Israel, they could say, wait, if God can do that, then He can do anything, right? And that's the point. And that has been the point a few chapters into Daniel, if you've been with us these last few weeks. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And I I think this morning, every once in a while, we need our pride to be put in check. So we're just going to land more on the pride, this this really easily seen theme in the text, this pride of Nebuchadnezzar. We could define pride in a number of ways. Here's a really simple way to describe it. It's, It's when God is small and you are big. When we think about God, we think about Him in very small terms, very minute terms, that God isn't really that able. And when we think about ourselves, well, we think of ourselves as the center of the universe. It revolves around me, and that's how I see life, and it's a prideful way to see life. I I like the way 
pride has been called before, which is really, it's, it's divine plagiarism. You think you're the author of your life? You think you're the captain of your soul? You plagiarist? You aren't. You didn't make you. You haven't orchestrated everything in your life. And in our time, in this moment, it seems to me we're not so much after the truth these days as we are after my truth. Jonathan Edwards talks about pride. This, 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 the subtlety of it, I guess you could say. He says, pride is much more difficultly discerned than any other corruption. For that reason, that the nature of it does very much consist in a person's having too high a thought of himself. But no wonder that he has, he that has too high a thought of himself don't know it, for he necessarily thinks that the opinion he has of himself is what he has just grounds for and therefore not too high. So as one thinks of themselves, they think, yeah, that's right. This is how I think of myself. This is how I view myself. So you think it's accurate. But in reality, what you see as accurate about your kind of self-assessment is actually super prideful. And he says, how do you ever catch it, you say? The heart is so deceitful and so unsearchable in nothing in the world as it is in this matter. And there is no sin in the world that men are so confident in and so difficultly convinced of. The very nature of it is to work self-confidence and drive away humility. Is that not so? I mean, in a, in a sense, it, it's quite easy to be, oh, well, there, there's lust in my heart. There, ah, there, there's greed here. Or, wow, that was an angry outburst. I'm kind of an angry person. Like, those, we, we kind of assess those, see those, they, they flare up, and, and, and we then therefore are able to kind of take stock of them. But, but pride? Me? Uh, this whole sermon is about pride, and jokingly, a uh, gentleman from the first service came up to me and said, excellent sermon. It wasn't for me, but really well done. So, <laughs> and that's the point, right? It's like, underneath it all, we're like, oh, I hope Dave hears this. I hope Janet hears this. You know, like, we're all kind of doing, we do that a little bit, because like, oh, man, they're so, interestingly, when we see pride in others, we're disgusted by it. Like, our radar for it is, is quite high. It's like, wow, they're prideful. But we don't do that with ourselves. We just don't notice it because we think, I'm thinking rightly about me. That's just how we operate. It's subtle. It's deceptive. And you know what? Pride is the root of all sin, and we don't think we have it. Pride is about feeling owed something you aren't. Let's try it on this way. Pride, feeling owed, feeling like you're owed something that you aren't owed at all. Like when something great happens to you, like almost out of the blue, it seems, just boom, like something wonderful has happened to you. If you ever have that feeling inside of you, like, it's about time, right? It's because you thought it was owed. You, th you think of yourself, it, the way that you think about yourself, that when something comes along that's good, you go, right on, yeah, I should, right? I should get that. But see, the reverse can happen too. We can be prideful when life is miserable too, right? So when things are going really poorly, what do we say? That's unfair. Why is it unfair? Because I'm owed more. When something great happens, we feel like we're owed. I deserve that. It's about time. When something terrible happens, it's not fair. 
I'm owed better than this. Do you see how it, it rears its ugly head in any category of life? In any, no matter the circumstances, we can be a prideful people. So here's the kind of the headings by which we will work our, our way through, and we're just taking a section of this passage at a time. I'd love to go verse by verse, but none of you would. So let's go section by section, and that's typically what we need to do with narrative anyways. So first, pride under the surface. Second, pride exposed. Third, pride cut down. And lastly, pride healed. Pride under the surface, pride exposed, pride cut down, and pride healed. Let's pray. I need it. You're going to need it. Let's, let's pray. Uh, oh, God, we, we love you. We get up today and astounding. Your mercies are new for us today. And I confess just a few hours in, oh, how I need your mercy. I need your grace. I'm a prideful man. I have some prideful friends here this morning as well. And Lord, um, we know that the great remedy to pride is, is nothing other than Jesus Christ himself. So we pray we meet Jesus today as we talk about these things. Evidence yourself through your word, by your spirit. Show us your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Pride under the surface when you have everything plus a troubled heart. Pick it up in verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was at ease and prospering in his palace. And yet verse 5 tells us he lay in his bed and he couldn't sleep. He was uneasy. Something was wrong. Something was plaguing him. It literally says that he was at ease. He was safe. He was secure. He was contented. He was prosperous and flourishing. And yet something was wrong. It seems like he has it all. By all accounts, no one could have more than Nebuchadnezzar had. He was the great ruler of the world at that time, it seemed. Yet he couldn't sleep. He was troubled in his heart. A few years ago, uh, 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 a movie uh, called The Aviator came out about Howard Hughes. Leo played Howard Hughes in that film. Leo. And, uh, and in it, it really tells the, the troubled story of, of this this wealthy tycoon. Howard Hughes was an American business magnet. Magnet. No, he was. I don't think so. Howard Hughes was an American business magnet investor. And you think, okay, so he's kind of business world kind of thing. But also a record-setting pilot, also a film director, and a philanthropist, known during his lifetime as one of the most financially successful indi successfully individuals in the world. As the film shows, he also became more and more troubled as his life went on. When I, when I read about Nebuchadnezzar here, I just thought, man, he's kind of gone Howard Hughes here a little bit. Like his nails are going long and all these things are happening to him. But it's interesting when we think about Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, and Howard Hughes and people of fame and that have really achieved it all, it would seem. Us common folk tend to believe that if we could just attain more prominence, more comfort, more success, then we'll be fulfilled and content. I think we common folk are the only people that think that that's even possible. We, we keep telling ourselves that it's true. And yet, George Clooney said, the big house on a hill is isolating. I mean, I'd like to try it, but 
He lives in the big house on the hill, and what has he found? George Clooney. It's isolating. It's lonely. I haven't walked in Central Park in 15 years. I just don't. I haven't. I, I thought I'd find it all here, and I found nothing. Hughes and Clooney and Leo, like others who reached the top, found nothing there. Like Nebuchadnezzar, they had ease and prosperity and were found wanting. Why? (laughs) Because these wildly successful individuals have found when they reach the top, what they're longing for is bigger than the world. I mean, they've attained, they've they've risen to the top of the world, right? They've risen to the top, but what did they find when they got to the top that the world has to offer? I guess what I'm still craving is more than the world. It's bigger than the world. What they've all been searching for, always been searching for, is the one who, though he was born in a stable and placed in a manger in a little nothing town called Bethlehem, when he was born, into that little place, he was bigger than the world. And that's what every person no matter their state, no matter their lot, no matter their circumstances, always been searching for. We're tricked, many of us, into thinking, attain, attain, attain. Get enough credit. Get enough due. And, and, and we turn to, to pride and thinking we're owed and feeling like we've been wronged over and over. Why? Because there's this, we want more than the world, even. But we just keep chasing what the world has to offer, and it breeds prideful hearts. Second, We see pride exposed, pride exposed when merciful warnings go unheeded. We pick it up and we see that Daniel um, is going to be the one to interpret this dream. I'm not sure why Nebuchadnezzar didn't go to Daniel in the first place, but he just kind of goes, because Daniel's already told him about his dream in in chapter 2, but what happens now is he kind of just goes back to his magicians and wise men and asks them all, and none of them can, so finally he comes to, to Daniel, and Daniel is able to interpret this vision of his. And Daniel interprets the dream, really, it centers around this mighty tree that can be seen by everyone. And its branches are enormous that produce fruit for all and provide shade and protection for everyone and for animals, but it will be cut down. And this tree, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, is you. You will be driven out to the wilderness and be like the other beasts there and eat grass like an ox. And Daniel says that all these things will happen. If you have a Bible, look at verse 25 because this is the point. Daniel says that all these things will happen till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it, doesn't believe it, doesn't know it, doesn't live his life in gratitude and praise as if he does. That everything is God's. And God does as He pleases. Nebuchadnezzar's issue is that he doesn't acknowledge that God is God. He doesn't acknowledge that everything he has is from the hand of God. He actually thinks he's self-made and that he rules the world. William Temple said, the essence of sin is that I make myself, in a host of ways, the center of the universe. And that's Nebuchadnezzar's issue here. And it's ours. We make ourselves in a host of ways the center of the universe. We're prideful when we actually believe that we're self-made. 
right? And they'll say, well, you don't know my story. I came from nothing, and I achieved all this. Sure, okay. Right? Look what I've built. Look what I've accomplished. Why wouldn't I be proud of who I am and what I've done? Well, the Apostle Paul refutes those kinds of thoughts in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, when he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Everything's from God. Why do you act as if it's your own doing? Look, did you choose your ethnicity? Did you choose your gender? Did you, did you choose where you were born and when you were born? Did you determine whether or not you'd be born into poverty in Zimbabwe? Was that you? Or Europe in the 14th century during the bubonic plague? I'd love to hear the narrative if I was self-made. I pulled up my bootstraps. I earned everything as like everyone was dying of the bubonic plague in Europe. Like, it's God. It's God. It's God who's placed you where He's placed you and given you what He's given you. Maybe you've seen this little video. It's um, made the rounds on YouTube. I found it quite profound. It it was some sort of summer camp scenario, I think. Um, There was a bunch of young adults uh, lined up in a big field, big line of young adults, and then there was a camp counselor guy or whoever in the middle of the field holding a $100 bill, and he said, we're going to have a race. Whoever can get to me first gets this $100 bill. But before we start, I'm going to ask you some questions. And if they apply to you, take two steps forward. So before the race starts, he's going to ask a number of questions. And for every question that they say, yeah, that's me, they can take two steps forward. And they get closer and closer to the $100 before he says go. And he started to ask questions like this. Takes two steps forward if your parents are still together. Like half the group. Step forward. Take two steps forward if you had access to private education. A few more steps forward again. Take two steps forward if you never had to help mom and dad with the bills. A few steps forward again. Many haven't even taken a step. Take two steps forward if you have never had to wonder where your next meal was going to come from. A few more steps forward. This preppy looking guy standing like three feet from the $100 bill and everyone's like, ah. Oh. And he's like, turn around, take a look around. He hasn't said go yet. Every statement I have made has nothing to do with anything any of you have done. Has nothing to do with decisions you've made. Right? Has everything to do with the hand you've been dealt, so to say. Has everything to do with privilege. Nothing to do with you. But all these opportunities afforded you, and of course, there's a bunch of people that are way back in the line. And then he says, go, and who gets the $100 bill? Well, it's the guy who took steps forward because of all the privilege that he had all the way along. When Wayne Gretzky was six years old, it was deemed unfair that he would get to play hockey with other six-year-olds because he scored like 246 goals or something like that. So it was only deemed fair that Wayne Gretzky could play hockey with 10-year-olds when he was a six-year-old. That was fair. I have a question about six-year-old Wayne Gretzky. Like, did you do that, Wayne? Like, when you were, by the time you were six, was it all the work you had put in? Like, I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old work put in. Like, I don't, that phrase isn't used often. Uh, (laughs) 
like, was six-year-old Wayne Gretzky, like, just practicing and practicing and practicing so that when he was six, he was scoring hundreds of goals on other six-year-olds? Or was it that this kid had a special talent, and when he realized it, sure, he gave himself to the craft, something he had already been handed? I mean, LeBron James, if I was that tall and that athletic, I think I could put the ball in the hoop a few times. I think, but I was made me, and, and I mourn. Uh, so... <laughs> Our tendency is to look at our successes and say, look what I've done. But listen, that totally breaks down. You can't live that way. We put our confidence and praise in ourselves, and we never should. What's amazing here is that while Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is on his throne, you think, okay, God, you're exposing his sin of pride. He doesn't even acknowledge you. Tear him down right now, but he doesn't. In fact, in the midst of exposing his pride in this vision that Daniel interprets, God is actually giving him in this time opportunity for repentance. What he does, what he says of the vision is that the tree will be cut down to the stump, will not be uprooted. And that stump will be covered in iron and bronze. It will be protected It'll be possible for it to grow up again. Daniel says this in verse 26, an opportunity for repentance. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you, have, you, that you know that heaven rules. If you will acknowledge God, your kingdom will be restored. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins, like now, by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Take heed of this vision of what is to come, and maybe if you would repent now, if you would turn to Him now in this season of this opportunity repent, God will bypass what is to come and just give you peace. I mean... I love what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9. It's precisely the same thing for all of us. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a season, you're here this morning, a season, a time of repentance. Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar. If I may be so bold, let me be Daniel to you this morning. You have time right now to repent and to believe and to trust in Jesus. You can do that. God is allowing you to hear this and to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. He's giving in this story, God, is mercy even towards Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, there is mercy for you. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, Today is the day of salvation. It doesn't promise that tomorrow will be, but today is. Turn from your sin. Repent and believe. If there's one word I'd want you to hear today, it's that Jesus approaches you as you are in the midst of your pride, in the midst of your sin, and says, you can turn to me. You can repent and believe. Today is the day of salvation. But in this story we're reading, we pick it up in verse 28, pride gets cut down when God graciously humbles you, me, us, Nebuchadnezzar. 
12 months after the interpretation of the dream. So what does that mean? It means that Daniel has shared what this vision means to Nebuchadnezzar, and then a year passes. It would appear that nothing has changed. Changed. So 12 months after the interpretation of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was standing on the roof of his palace, and here's what he says in verse 30. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words are still in his mouth, the vision he had a year earlier was fulfilled. Ah, look at my kingdom, look at my palace, look at my... Everything that I see is mine, and in the middle of saying that, he's, he's turned into a man that's going to spend a good long seven seasons eating grass in a wilderness. Like, in an instant, God is showing him, yours? Yours? Now, what happens to him is sometimes referred to as lycanthropy. Oh, wow. So this is my niche, you can tell, hey? Lycanthropy is really when, when, when someone imagines that they are an animal and acts that way. Or more specifically, boanthropy, uh, where one imagines oneself a cow or a bull and acts accordingly. On the ground, as people saw it, boanthropy started to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. We see in the story, we kind of zoom out and see that God is punishing, bringing judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar for his ways. As one commentator said of this striking transition, Superman became subhuman. The one who refused to honor God's glory loses his own glory. Refusing to share what he has with the poor, he becomes poorer than the poor. He becomes outwardly what his heart had been spiritually and inwardly bestial. Nebuchadnezzar made himself out to be more than a man, so God made him less than a man. Martin Lloyd-Jones, British preacher of the last century on pride undealt with and, and pride dealt with and the contrast of the two, he says this, I really am not prepared to listen to people who tell me that they glory in the revelation of God's love unless they have dealt with themselves. There is no value in any striving to keep the tenets of the Christian faith unless those tenets have have made you see yourself in the world, unless they have flashed upon you in such a way as to make you see the manifestation of self. That is what the love of God always does. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. It is incredible that God could love such a person as I have been describing. That is the amazing thing. That is love, says John. Therefore, if you believe and know all that, it makes you see yourself as you are. And do you see what happens at once? The moment you see yourself like that, you cry with John Bunyan, He that is down need fear no fall. He that is low in pride. 
John Bunyan meant that when I see myself as I really am, nobody can insult me. It is impossible because they can never see anything that is bad enough about me. Whatever the world may say about me, I am much worse than they think. When we see ourselves in the light of this glorious gospel, no one can hurt us. No one can offend us. I mean, that's why the Apostle Paul would say, what? I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the chief of sinners. And we often, right, theologize that. We kind of we just say, like, well, you know, he persecuted Christians, and that was really, really atrocious, and so he was the worst of them. But yeah, okay, yes, absolutely. But also, the Apostle Paul knew his own heart more than, more than he knew anyone else's. And so when people would revile him, say harsh things to him, he'd say, oh, no, I'm much, much worse than that. Almost every week, I feel like, is this a, is, is this a joke? Is this a trick? Like, why, why am I stepping onto the stage to preach? Most of the church are more holy than me, more put together than me, more sincere than me, more, right, endearing than me, right? All of those things. This morning, I feel like the right person to preach this because I'm an expert on pride. Oh, this is my day. This, is, this one's mine. I'll take this one. I'm in my wheelhouse here. I mean, this has been my road. There are times when I believe with the Apostle Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. And whenever I've landed there, God has seen fit to use me. Much of the time, I don't land there. I trick myself. I fool myself. Oh, you're pretty important. You're talking to a newspaper tomorrow about all the cool things that the church is doing, and they want to talk to you about how great it is. And I think, yes, they've finally seen. But when I can remember, right? When I can just remember, right? I, I say this to myself a lot. I'm just a beggar. My great privilege is I get to show other beggars where I've found bread. So all I do is hold up the scripture and say, cling to this with me because it reveals a savior worth following. And if I can point Jesus out enough to you, uh, you won't even notice me. And that's the point. We're all just pilgrims on the way after all. So I said when, you know, pride, we can look at that and say, when God is small and you are big, we could talk about humility by saying when God is big and you're just grateful, you know, not so, not so much small. We're kind of just out of the picture, just recognizing who God is and just reveling in magnifying Him, bringing Him glory, seeing ourselves rightly, right? I don't deserve the good things in my life because if God gave me what I deserve, I would be lost. And yet he sees fit to give me gifts and blessings anyway. And so I praise him. That, that, that's, the, that's the posture of humility. Let me ask you a question. Was it, was it mean and was it simply punitive of God to cut down Nebuchadnezzar? I think as we read the story, we're like, yeah, right? Put him in his place, right? 
It was actually incredibly merciful of God to cut him down. He didn't uproot him, but he cut him down. And to be cut down to the stump was incredibly gracious of God to do for Nebuchadnezzar. And the same is true for you. In God's great mercy, God brings humbling circumstances into your lives. Have you had any of those? A person or people who call you on your manure like substances? They just call you on your stuff. Do you have anyone like that? Do you consider them a blessing from God? <laughs> Thank you for cutting me down. It's so accurate that I'm going to pretend you don't know what you're talking about, right? Do you have people like that that are willing to call you on things? That's His grace to you, you know. Hopefully they love, love you through it. Have you had humbling circumstances or are you in the midst of humbling circumstances in your life that haven't allowed you to pretend or to put on a face that all is well? Circumstances in your life that have humbled you so much that you can't for an instant pretend that you're self-made, that you're a big deal, that you're a success. And well, we would often find those things horrific for others to see, they're God's grace that He would humble us. Oh, His grace to us, that He would cut us down. I don't know if this is just legend or if it's fact, but it's been recorded in history, and it's that after great military victories of Rome and the Roman Empire, there was a, a Roman slave who would be appointed to stand behind a victorious Roman general during triumphant celebration as the general was coming back into the city of Rome to all the fanfare, it is said that there was a slave assigned to his back who would stand right behind him. And you know what the job of the slave was to do as the general was, was brought through the streets of Rome on a chariot to wild fanfare? The job of the slave was to say, homo es, which means you are only a man. And as the Roman general would go down the streets with people, wave, fanfare in the streets, and the general waving and just taking it all in, the slave would be right behind him. You're only a man. You are only a man. You are only a man. I've been thinking about our summer internships. I'd love to get one and say to them, your job is to just come with me places, stand behind me. And just at the right time, you are only a man. And then I said this really brilliant thing to the person, you're only a man. You're only a man. Actually, I have that. That's my wife. My wife, you're only a man. <laughs> God's gift to me. I love what the ESV Gospel Trans Transformation Bible says at this point in the commentary. As long as Nebuchadnezzar is busy looking down on others, God is distant. But when he looks up in desperation, God provides his grace. And that's the last point. Pride healed. Let's pick up the narrative. After seven periods of time, Nebuchadnezzar actually lifts his eyes to heaven, which was the whole point. Seven periods of time. What does that mean? Well, some think it means seven months. Some think it means seven years. 
of eating grass like an ox and those kinds of things. Some think it's seven seasons, right? So maybe a year and a half kind of thing, seven seasons of the year, a year and a bit, almost two years. I just, I just take the word seven to mean what it often means in the scriptures, which is a number that, that, that means perfection, which means just the right amount of time, no more, no less. The instant, the amount of time that was needed for Nebuchadnezzar to lift his eyes was the time that God cut him down. And as he lifts his eyes, his reason is restored and his kingdom is restored to him and he praises God. Pride healed when the king praises God for what the Most High has done for me. I'm quoting Nebuchadnezzar from verse 3. And that's an amazing thing. See, when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, he was also converted. And he's declaring at the beginning of the chapter, God has done some amazing things for me, for you, for me, and I want to tell everyone about them. And so he goes on to tell the story. And it's amazing here that Nebuchadnezzar talks about the God who has done great things for me because it seems that when God humbled him, he also converted him. Because in Daniel chapter 2, after Daniel not only is able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he actually is able to just tell him what the dream was without Nebuchadnezzar saying it. He tells him the dream he had, and then he gives him the interpretation of the dream. And yes, Nebuchadnezzar is amazed by that. Wow, that's astounding. And he says, Daniel, truly your God is God. He's just amazed at what this God of Daniel's has done. Same thing. Daniel chapter 3, he, shows, he throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And then what? When they are spared, he says, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their God, he's amazing. But not here, not after he has been humbled. It's because he's been converted and he says, my God. Verse 2, the Most High God, look what He's done for me. Verse 34, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Verse 37, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all His works are right and His ways are just and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. I praise and extol and honor this King of heaven for myself. Nebuchadnezzar went from pride, in, this confidence in self, to confidence in God by being humbled. Nebuchadnezzar is changed because he no longer believes he's the master of his fate and he's the captain of his soul. He's converted and sees that God is truly God and he is my God. Pride is also healed because he sees when the king of Babylon praises the king of heaven. Verse 37 again, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar is changed because he now has a relationship with God and because he sees things as they truly are. God is God and he is not. Everything good is from God. It comes from God's hand. Here's an application point I want and it's a question, simply a question. Are you more like the pre-beast scenario, Nebuchadnezzar, or the post-beast scenario, Nebuchadnezzar? In the middle of the story, there's a beast who eats grass like an ox. Are you more like the Nebuchadnezzar that came before that or the one that came after that? And what if your answer is, I, I think I'm more like the 
Nebuchadnezzar before the beast scenario, what then? Well, I guess then what we need is the remedy. What can heal a prideful heart? Nebuchadnezzar was only a man who was made a king. He had pride and he was humbled. Jesus was the king of kings and became a man. He was humble and then he was exalted. The answer to a prideful heart, the healing for it, can really be found in Philippians chapter 2. Let me read it over us. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Sounds a lot like pride. But in humility, right, that Christian virtue, which is the opposite of pride, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Nebuchadnezzar was not master of the universe, but he acted as if he was. You are not the master of the universe, but often you and I act as if we are. Jesus was the only one in the universe who actually was the master of the universe, and he laid it all down. So if we would take our cues from Jesus, the mind of Christ that is given to us as followers of Jesus, if we would surrender our lives to him, if we would follow after him, follow his road, the humble road, we, we don't need to, we don't need to have pride in ourselves. God will exalt us. We don't need to exalt in ourselves. He will exalt us. We simply humbly follow after Jesus and He will make much of us. us. That's, simple, that's what it says in 2 Timothy 2 when He says, if we have died with Him, we'll also live with Him. And if we endure, we will also reign with Him. We need to follow the humble road of Jesus and He'll help us do it. He'll expose our pride. He'll point us to Christ. And as we do that, oh, don't you worry. Christ, in the end, will ultimately exalt you. God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. He did it with Jesus, and He will do it with every person who relies not on their own self-worth and accomplishments, but on Jesus Christ's supreme worth and accomplishments. Let's pray. Jesus, we... Thank you for just being this profound answer to this problem of pride. And we so long to have rooted out of us and yet so rears its ugly head in us. God, for some of us, that pride exists because we've never actually given our lives over to you. We've never surrendered to you. We've been the masters of our own fates the captains of our own souls. And Lord, today I pray that we, like Nebuchadnezzar, would be converted by, by looking to you and saying, you are God, I am not. 
You're in control. I don't have to be. We can lay our lives in your hands. And Lord, as followers of Jesus in the room as well, Lord, we say, rid us of this pride. Would you heal us of it? Would you make us more and more like your son, Jesus? Would you humble us? And Lord, we'll leave the exalting, not to ourselves, but to you. In Jesus' name, amen.